Hello and welcome to the Latter-day Saint Women podcast, where we share the legacy of women of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You'll get to know the faithful women who shaped our past and hear from inspiring women of faith today. I'm Carly Guyman. And I'm Shailen Beck. We're your co-hosts. Today, we're excited to welcome back to the podcast, Emily Utt. Emily, thanks for joining us again today. It's good to be here. Emily is the Historic Sites Curator in the Church History Department, and she just told us today she's been with Church History for 16 years, and she has a master's degree from Goucher College in Baltimore in Historic Preservation. And one of the great things about this podcast is just our opportunity to talk with incredible women in a variety of locations that have different roles and are in different circumstances. And we also get to talk about influential women of our past that we may not or may have heard about. And today we get to talk with Emily about an incredible woman in our more recent past. Her name's Florence Jacobson, and she actually just passed away a few years ago. She was a young women general president, and she was also called, this was fascinating that it's a calling, she was called as the church curator for church history in the 1970s. And so we'll go back a little bit into Florence's life later. But Emily, first of all, we want to go back to you. We just love your job. (laughs) So will you tell us just a little bit more about your position and what you're responsible for, especially currently? It's so exciting. It's so great to talk to Emily because you are doing the work that Florence sort of began. So it's perfect to have you here to talk about Florence and then We want to hear more about the work that you're doing now, continuing what she started. Well, now that you've talked that up. um, So (laughs) my role in church history is really architectural historian and building preservationist. So what Florence was doing in the 1970s to save significant church buildings and keep those stories a part of our story, that's really what I'm doing now. So I'm heavily involved in renovation projects at historic sites. We have a number of projects going on right now in Nauvoo and in Palmyra. I'm also really heavily involved in temple renovations. Um, Which is a big deal right now with the Pioneer Temples being... Yeah, so um, yeah, I've been heavily involved almost for a decade now at the Salt Lake Temple and at the St. George Temple preparing for these current renovations. The work that's being done now. Yeah, so we've been doing research for a decade in preparation for these projects. Wow. And then I'm involved almost daily on site, you know, as we're in construction, finding interesting details and things mm-hmm. out about people's lives. And then the more mundane things of preservation, you know, how, how to clean stone the right way and, how, and the, um, the right paint colors to use in historic mm-hmm. buildings. I'm also really heavily involved in meeting house renovations and repairs that need to happen regularly. Of those old and historic buildings. buildings. Yeah, so the real point of my job is building preservation, making sure that these old places that are loved by Latter-day Saints remain a part of who we are Mm -hmm. as a church. And I feel like so many people would want to ask, because the Salt Lake Temple renovation is such a prominent project and something that is so close to so many people's hearts, mm-hmm. you know, is sort of the symbol of our faith. Mm-hmm. What has it been like to work and to be there <laughs> as it's almost, it looks like it's being like taken apart and things are being removed and moved. And what has that been like? It's been a little bit strange in some days because most of us think about the temple as this very quiet, peaceful place. You know, you're dressed in white. It's very clean. The grounds are serene. It's just this nice, quiet place. When a building is in renovation, none of that is true. (laughs) The first time I walked through the Salt Lake Temple carrying power tools was a strange moment. 
so currently in the temple, I'm, I'm in a hard hat, steel toe boots. It is a giant hole in the ground. There are trucks running around. It's noisy. It's loud. It's messy. And it can be really hard to walk into those spaces because you think of it as a temple. So part of what we're really trying to do actually on that project is find ways to help the construction workers find connection. So when I'm in the building with them, I often get stopped by construction workers saying, hey, what is this? Or, hey, I found this thing. Do you think it's worth telling that story? So we have found signatures left behind by original workers. Um, As we found, you know, he opened up the capstone Mm -hmm. recently. We found coins and books and things that have been left behind, some in better shape than others. So we're dealing with this challenge of it's messy and it's loud and we have to move very, very quickly while also trying to find ways to keep the sacred spirit of those places. Mm -hmm. So we pray in our meetings and we try to keep a spirit of reverence as we go, but we are in a... On a construction site. We're on a construction site (laughs) and and there's a lot going on. And I couldn't even describe to you what it looks like. One of our team members called it visually disconcerting. It just... (laughs) It's getting taken apart. It's getting taken apart. And it, you know, it's really painful in some moments to see projects and things that are going on. But knowing that some of it has to happen, you know, we need to strengthen those foundations. And that is complicated, dirty work. But if we don't strengthen those foundations, the building won't survive. And so it's also very exciting to see what the future is going to bring and that we'll Mm -hmm. have these buildings around to continue to enjoy. Well, with that, now that we understand what you do, let's jump back and connect to Florence. So, Emily, will you just tell us who is Florence Smith Jacobson and what is her background, what she involved with? So Florence has a connection with church history from her very earliest years. Both of her grandfathers are presidents of the church. So her father's father is Joseph F. Smith, which means... Her father's grandfather is is Hiram Hiram Smith. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That's amazing. So her great-grandparents are Hiram and Mary Fielding Smith, if you think about that. So as a very little girl, she remembered going to visit Joseph F. Smith in his room at the Beehive House. Oh, wow. So as a little girl, she grew up in those places. Her mother's father was Heber J. Grant, and she lived next door to him the entire time he was president of the church. So from a very, very early age, Florence is entrenched in the history of the church. So deeply connected. Church history to her was family history. Mm -hmm. She's a Smith. She's a Grant. But what that also means is that her parents' friends are all of these other names in church history that we know. Totally, yeah. So she grew up as a little girl at the Beehive House. Mm. So she basically grew up with all of the apostles— for her entire life. She was on a first name basis with all of them. Hmm. So I I think that's what made her, as she became an adult, such an influential and powerful person, because she had all these personal connections. She had known people for years, and she also had a very healthy respect for the priesthood because she had seen its inner workings. And she grew up knowing how to navigate those relationships, how to speak respectfully to those in leadership but also to exert her own influence Mm -hmm. and her own voice because she had a voice. Mm -hmm. She had a very considerable, powerful voice. Mm -hmm. 
And the other thing I think that really made an impact on Florence as she became an adult is that because those stories of church history were part of her childhood, it was part of her identity. Mm -hmm. So preserving church history just came naturally to her. There were times that she would occasionally give talks and lectures like at BYU or General Conference and things where she would talk about your legacy as a Latter-day Saint, what it meant for you. And she often made a point that the best way to honor our pioneer legacy is by you becoming a person worthy of that story. Hmm. So how you carry yourself, how you show who you are to the world is a reflection of your heritage. So build the heritage that you want the generations after you to have, knowing that your heritage Hmm. is built on the generations that came before. I think that's such a beautiful sentiment. I actually listened to one of her talks, and that was something that really stuck out to me is connecting the importance of these artifacts that you'd see in a museum with then your personal legacy. for you. And yeah, yeah, what that means for you. And she, I remember her saying, these artifacts reaffirm that the gospel has been restored and that the art and the artifacts that are part of the restoration, they enlarge our testimonies. And I just think that's such an incredible connection. It really connected to me. She also talked a lot about how your personal deportment. So I only met Florence once very, very briefly at the end of her life. But in talking to people that knew her and worked with her, Florence was always very put together. She was wearing pearls every day. (laughs) She was that kind of person, you know, white tablecloth, no matter the meal, because how you carried yourself was a reflection of your faith. But that same idea then transcends it when she gets into historic site restorations because things... And that perfection. That perfection. Mm-hmm. She expected perfection out of everyone that she worked with. When you go to church history sites, you can feel it. Do you know what I mean? It's like there has been so much time and effort put into this to create this feeling of connection. And mm-hmm. and I talked to one of her employees and he told me that she outworked the, the whole crew. She was there before them in the morning and was there after them in the, in the evening. And she would get on her hands and knees and polish floors, even well, in, well into old mm-hmm. age, because that level of perfection mm-hmm. is what's needed. Mm-hmm. Because we're going to give our very, very best to the church, because that is what the church needs from us. So tell us the circumstances around her being called to be the church curator. So if you jump back to her college year, she attended the University of Utah and had a degree in, I think it was some type of interior design or fashion. And after college, she worked for a very short amount of time for a Salt Lake City-based clothing company that was involved in making temple clothing. Oh, okay. So she had a little some bit of background. Design. She had some clothing mm-hmm. design background, and but also very connected church, to the church. church design uh-huh. and understanding of temples. And then she married Ted Jacobson, and in the 1950s, Ted was called as president of the Eastern States Mission. So they lived in Manhattan for several Moved years. To New York in, City. In, mm-hmm. lived in New York City in the 1950s, managing the missionaries in the Eastern States. And that was one of the most influential missions in the church. Eastern States takes in the main church history sites in Palmyra. Oh, I hadn't thought of mm-hmm. that. Yeah. And all these other places. And again, that increases her involvement with general authorities, right? Because if, if you are mission president, a general authority is going to come stay with you. It's going to stay with you mm-hmm. and it, you'll have chances to talk with them and mm-hmm. share and, ideas and she with tours them. And you, so all of their mission involvement was very much church history in, in this huge urban center 
that mission covered New York and Washington, D.C. So they're very well involved with everything going on. In the last few weeks, I've been actually reading all of Florence's oral history interviews that she did with Church History, and she tells stories of these missionaries coming to them from these little tiny farm towns, and they would come down to breakfast in, like, jeans and T-shirts, and she was like, no, you're a missionary. Send them back up the stairs. They would have to change into their suit to come down to breakfast because you are a missionary. You're not (laughs) – we're not lazy about this. And after they came home – Ted was put in charge of the Temple Square mission. So the church has been giving tours of Temple Square since about 1903. And so in the 50s and 60s, Ted was in charge of all of the docents and the guides and the museums. Kind of how that was set up at the time. On Temple Square. Mm -hmm. Which was neat for her because that's where she grew up. That's where she grew up. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think also that helped her get connections for things that are coming Mm -hmm. later. And then in the 1960s, she was called as Young Women's General President. And in that era of the Young Women, and really all of the auxiliaries, you had these giant boards. It wasn't just the president, the presidency, the three. There were really large, large, supporting. And they were doing huge things. So they had members of their board in charge of camps. They had members of their board in charge of church-wide dances and dance programs, and music programs, and culture, and literacy. The young women, and really all of the auxiliaries, are in charge of all their own curriculum. So they are writing all of the lesson manuals for the youth of the church. I mean, they're, they're doing all of it. They're writing their own magazines. They are hosting their own conferences. These auxiliaries are these huge forces. And part of the challenge is it's a, you know, it's a global, tr- it's, we're starting growing. to grow. We're growing and spreading. It's more than just in Utah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so Florence and people like Florence who had grown up with the church's Utah. Very central. And grew up in this era of like, we can do these huge pageants and these plays mm-hmm. and these big cultural themes. And so Florence's presidency was very much focused on those kinds of community heritage sense of things that are going on, right? That they're going to have these big events. And so it was hard for her when the correlation era is taking place and we're trying to consolidate and go global to see all of these big events and these big community themes that they were doing just kind of going away. Mm -hmm. So she was involved in the committee that created the new era, for example, in an attempt to kind of consolidate all of the auxiliary functions into, into one theme. The other really big thing she was involved in as Young Women's General President was preservation of the Lion House. And that really is what spurred everything else. Her involvement in And why was she assigned to that particularly as the Uh, Young Women President? So her grandfather, Joseph F. Smith, had lived in the Beehive House. And she had attended, likely, many of the events that were taking place in the Lion House in the 20s and 30s and 40s. And the story goes is that they were looking at redeveloping the church headquarters campus. Mm -hmm. LDS University that had been on that block was moving, Mm -hmm. and a lot of the other buildings were kind of becoming old and obsolete. Mm -hmm. And so she was actually, I think, on the sidewalk in front of the building one day, and Henry D. Moyle, who was an apostle, stopped her and said, oh, by the way, we're tearing down the Lion House because we need a new parking garage entrance. Oh, no. For, <laughs> for, for the, so the, because they, they needed a new entrance for the redevelopment of the, the headquarters of area. that block. Mm-hmm. And Florence, as she said later, over my dead body, are you tearing that house down? And so the young women were given a very small budget 
and she was told, okay, if you if you were that serious, you care about that it, much about it, you take you. Can, yeah, so it wasn't connected it. with her calling; it was just because of her. <laughs> it was her influence, yes. and her love, passion. and and her mm-hmm. passion and connection for her family's history. And so the young women had been running a lot of the events out of that house for several decades, and the young women had been running the Beehive House as a boarding house. So there was a strong mm-hmm. young women connection. organization connection. The earliest meetings of the young women in the 1870s were held in the Lion House as Brigham Young's family residence. But really, it was Florence saying, no, you can't tear that house down. That's important to us as a people. And so the young women's organization was put in charge of that house. And they restored it. And Florence, because of her connections, put a call out for furniture. And people just gave her furniture to put into that house. Hmm. And that was it. And I read, too, with the Lion House that she had suggested, let's make this a reception space. And she'd suggested the restaurant that's in the basement there and even compiled the first Lion House cookbook, which I think, you know, I'm like, she did. That was her. That was. (laughs) Yeah. So the Lion House had been um, part of LDS University. And so there had been a small cafeteria in there for the university students. students. Or other people working downtown. But yeah, it was really, it was Florence saying, no, we, we need to save this. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the kind of guiding principles in preservation is the best way to save a building is to make it useful. Hmm. So the Beehive House had been restored as a historic house museum a few years before. So there was a sense that we don't need, to, we don't need two, two historic house right museums. right next to each other. So Florence opened the restaurant, opened the event space used the parlor where the women had been organized to kind of commemorate that organization. And until very recently, there were little pots out front of the house that had the young women values in them, connecting it back to the young women's role in that building. But in her restoration of the home, she did a few interesting things. She furnished it actually probably a little bit grander than what Brigham Young would have done. It's a little nicer Mm-hmm. <laughs> than, than, than a little how, bit of an yeah. upgrade. Yeah. But she wanted it an event space because, again, if a beautiful space is a reflection of who we are as a people. Mm-hmm. The other odd thing that she did that I scratched my head about a little bit, they had to put in a couple of extra staircases to meet egress building codes. So she turned the bedroom that actually Brigham Young had died in into the staircase. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Which seems odd to me as a preservationist now that that I would have maybe picked a different bay of the building to put that in. (laughs) But that's what she did. And so if we lost the Brigham Young bedroom and we saved the building, I think that's a a fair trade. (laughs) Sure. Um, Sure. Yeah. But it makes me a little bit nervous, too. A few years ago, we replaced the carpet in that house. And Florence at the time was living across the street. And I was a little bit nervous that she was going to come running out of her apartment, yelling at us for doing something (laughs) wrong because we were replacing the carpet and it wasn't the right carpet. But she didn't. But that's, (laughs) I was a little nervous about that. (laughs) So she was obviously very involved in this, even Mm -hmm. in her calling in The Young Women, but then has kind of this official call to step into the role of curator. Yep. So in the early 1970s, there is a shift in the national discussion about saving historic spaces. So in 1966, a federal act called the National Preservation Act was passed. And so now there is a groundswell of interest. Or the in, whole industry. And the whole, whole the whole country mm-hmm. and saving places. Mm-hmm. And the early 1970s, the church is now facing a challenge because so many of our really beautiful old buildings were now 50, 60 years old, needed a lot of work. And new buildings are cheaper, they're easier Mm -hmm. to maintain, 
And so a lot of buildings were at risk. And there were also the, the generation of church members who had saved the artifacts and the art from those early people. That generation was slowly passing They're away. They're moving on. They're yeah. moving on. Mm-hmm. And so now you have a generation of artifacts that don't have a home because the church doesn't have a museum and the church doesn't have a preservationist. And so Florence in the early 1970s takes on that assignment. That's so neat that they saw the need and they're mm-hmm. like, oh, and we have the, the perfect person yeah. to do yes, this. They <laughs> did have the perfect person. Yeah. Her life really led to, yeah. led to this calling. Yeah, so, it's amazing. So what's amazing about her, she's not trained in it at all, but she loves it. Yeah. And so her connections to prominent Latter-day Saints, her person Who probably had these artifacts. Yeah. So when she needed Joseph F. Smith artifacts... She called her cousins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, when she needs anything, she she knows who yeah, has them because she's grown up mm-hmm. with all of these people. To be in. Yeah. And because Ted was the president of a construction company, he then had access to all of these people and connections. So when it came time to, in the early 1970s, to start preserving the church's history, Florence and Ted know everybody. So so in the early 1970s, there are only a few other kind of callings like this. The church historian is a calling. Leonard Arrington mm-hmm. is, a, is a calling in the church. The church architect, Emil Fetzer, is a calling. And Florence Jacobson, the church curator. So in those early years, that's how big of a deal capturing our history was. Mm-hmm. In those decades, the church lost some really important buildings. Um, some tabernacles were torn down. And so Florence... It became a really personal thing for her. She was willing to go in and fight to save these buildings and these places because history was who she was. Mm-hmm. You know, if we tear a building down, we are losing a bit of who we are. So as church curator from the 1970s into the 1980s, she preserved a lot of really significant buildings. Well, and this is such a neat connection to what you're doing now, too. As we mentioned, the restoration of the Pioneer Temple. Mm-hmm. So it's neat that she was involved in that restoration in in the 80s and then it's Mm -hmm. now so she was really involved in restoration of a lot of tabernacles in some temples and she was involved in restoration of historic sites in palmyra and in kirtland and in nauvoo and in saint george but i think her biggest accomplishment really was the creation of the church history museum I didn't know that. That's huge. And it's so interesting for you to say that we know that preserving history and keeping a record is so important, but that we didn't have a museum to hold those artifacts until not that long ago. Yeah. Yeah. So in the 1960s and 70s, if there was an original painting from this in the Salt Lake Temple that was removed, it went to BYU or the Daughters of Utah Pioneers. Hmm. And so in the 1970s, Florence started gathering all those materials back. Mm-hmm. And so in the ni- early 1980s, when the Church History Museum was built, that was the first actual repository owned by the church of our history. And the original name was the Museum of Church History and Art. So it was mm-hmm. supposed to be half history museum, half art museum. Mm-hmm. So she went on this huge collecting endeavor to build the church's art collection. So the church's Minerva Tyker paintings, for example, that we own are in large part due to Florence's efforts. Mm-hmm. She's really created this legacy that you can just see yeah. and feel and we're still experiencing today. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. So you mentioned that this was at a time when in the United States, preservation was mm-hmm. kind of top of mind for some people and was starting these discussions. And so this industry was dominated by men. 
and she is just coming in as this woman who she's not educated in this particular field, but she has a very strong passion. She has Mm -hmm. a lot of experience. But can you tell us what was this like for her to kind of come into this industry at this time? Yeah. So what's interesting, actually, if you go way back in preservation, preservation has often been dominated by women. So if you go back to the 1850s to preserving Mount Vernon, for example, the Mount Vernon Ladies Association. Mm-hmm. So preservation early on it was seen as kind of a woman's job, connecting with, us, with our history. But the construction industry is extremely male-dominated. And Florence is at an extreme disadvantage. I feel like this is such an interesting discussion because, as you said, even in the time that Florence was working in this sphere, the church was becoming more and more global. And I think today about some women listening or people listening to our podcast who will never even enter a historic site in the United States or visit Palmyra or maybe even a pioneer temple. So I think the question is today, as we move forward as a global faith, what is the value of this historic site's preservation and why do we continue to dedicate so much time and resources? And I guess maybe speak to those people who it's like, well, I'll never go there. I'll never see that. Why does that still matter so much to us as a church? So there are some places that no matter how much you read about is never going to be as good as the real thing. We talk sometimes that there is no substitute for standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon. There's something about being in that space and breathing that air And church historic sites, for me, are kind of similar. Even if I've never visited Palmyra, knowing that that physical space, you know, that I could stand in the spot where Joseph Smith stood and have that kind of personal connection. And so, yeah, that's one of the challenges that we deal with now is, yeah, most church members will never actually physically visit these places. But every country in the world and every region has a place that is significant to the church in that area. Every country has a place where the first members or there's mm -hmm. where the first baptisms took place Mm -hmm. or a meeting house that was built at tremendous sacrifice Mm -hmm. by local members. So we think about the pioneers, you know, they built these buildings by hand. There are still countries in the world where we're doing that. So I think about the church in New Zealand in the 1950s, that we purchased a forest to cut down our own trees and then built a sawmill to make buildings for the church. And you can attend church in those buildings. So I think Florence's legacy is helping us understand and find those places that matter in our local history. Mm -hmm. All of us worship in a meeting house where generations before us have also worshipped. People were making sacrifices and Mm -hmm. demonstrating their faith and yeah. Yeah and so knowing the place where the first member of the church in your area lived Mm -hmm. I think that matters because the more we understand their story the more we realize that their story is ours. Mm -hmm. I think about you know the church has an oral history program today where they're interviewing the first members of the church in different regions. So we're meeting and interacting with members of the church today that are our version of Wilfred Woodruff mm-hmm. and John Taylor and Mary Fielding Smith. Mm-hmm. So I think about the story, mm-hmm. you know, what questions would I ask Mary Fielding Smith if I could sit down with her for mm-hmm. a couple of minutes, right? And then we have counterparts that we can ask. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And so pr- preserving church history is allowing us to capture those stories, whether that building was built in 1870 or in 1970, mm-hmm. those places have 
sacred stories to share with us. So mm-hmm. by preserving them, by sharing those stories, we're continuing that legacy. Mm-hmm. We're continuing the story of what it means to be a member of the church. And I love that because I think there are parts of Florence's story and background that aren't very relatable. You know, most <laughs> of us are not related to two presidents of the church. <laughs> and have us. quite the connection yeah. that she had. Most, most of us didn't grow up listening yeah. to Hubert J. Grant singing to himself. On you know? Temple yes. Square. On, yes. Right. So part of that is like, I can't really relate to that. But her passion for, like you said, the value and the importance of those who have gone before us, whether that's like our very earliest leaders and pioneers, or like you said, in your own family or in your own Mm -hmm. area of the world, knowing those stories. Because yeah, I think we have a tendency to feel like we are experiencing life for the first time and no one else has had these hardships or had these challenges with faith, but those connections can fortify us. And they matter. And Mm -hmm. they matter. And I I think she was really big on community building, you know, that we have all church dance parties and we have these curriculum themes and we do all these things because of the community that it builds and the connections that it creates between Mm -hmm. individuals and families. And what that looks like changes as the Mm -hmm. church grows and evolves, right? But that effort of community Mm -hmm. is still 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 there. there. So when you have a ward potluck, we're continuing the legacy of a hundred years. It may sound strange to say <laughs> but that. But it's true. But it's true. Yeah. When, when you give in your ward, when you show up for a cleaning assignment mm-hmm. and you clean your building. And you're making connections with people. Yeah. It's just the same. It's the same. Florence was also a member of the National Council of Women. So not only is she Young Women's General President, she's church curator. She's involved in one of the largest national organizations for women's rights in the 1960s and 1970s. Hmm which is a huge deal. Kind of representing the So the and... National Council of Women was formed in, I think, the 1880s by people like Susan B. Anthony. Hmm. And so Florence then is involved when she's the Women's General President with this national organization that is focused on improving family life in the United States, improving access to education for women in the United States. They were working to combat secularism and materialism and trying to bring a focus back to the family and those kind of central tenets as they saw shifting Mm -hmm. world values. Values. Mm -hmm. In the 1950s and 60s, they were also a huge supporter of the United Nations. The UN is still relatively new and we're not sure, you know, what, what do we want to do? So people like Florence were involved in the rights of women on a national and a global scale, Mm -hmm. while she's also restoring the Lion House, Wow, (laughs) which I love. So she's doing all of that. Such a broad, so many broad contributions. Well, and she was a wife and a mother, and, Mm -hmm. you know, she had so many things. She had so many things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and she's an active member of the church. She's Mm -hmm. involved in her community. They're they're doing it all. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I just would be tired. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know how. how to, yeah. Emily, after learning so much about Florence and her life and legacy, what do we owe to her? And what can we learn from her dedication and service and passion in so many aspects of her life? I think one thing that I really respect Florence for and I learned from her is be willing to fight for those things that you believe in. If you believe in the rights for women join an organization that's going to advocate for those things. If you believe that our history is worth saving, do something about it. Don't just say, well, oh yeah, we need a parking garage entrance and just let it go. She fought for what she believed and she probably butted heads a lot and she probably disagreed with people a lot, but because she was willing to stand up for something, we have things to show for it. 
So I think that's one of my big takeaways is that if you are passionate about something and if you believe in something, be willing to battle for it. Be willing to stand up and, and speak out and speak and use out your voice and use mm-hmm. your voice and use the reputation that you've built. You know, I think people listen to her because of who she was, mm-hmm. because she had built a reputation over decades. Church leaders knew that if Florence said she was going to do something, she would do it and she would do it well. Mm-hmm. And that's not something that you just have. That's something that you have to earn. Mm-hmm. So build the kind of life that people will respect, trust there. that they'll mm-hmm. trust, that if people know that you're going to do something, you're going to do it. Mm-hmm. People like Florence, they work extremely hard. They are trusted by everyone. They use their connections not to get ahead, but to help others. She's the granddaughter of two church presidents. She could have sailed through life with mm-hmm. just that. <laughs> But she used that relationship to promote the cause of Zion, Mm -hmm. to promote the things that were near and dear to her heart. So I think, what connections do I have? What Mm -hmm. relationships can I develop that will help promote the, the Mm. the cause of Zion in that same way? So Emily, thank you so much for spending time with us today, sharing a little bit about your work, which is so interesting, and then your connection with Florence and information about her that we just wouldn't know. So thank you so much. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning into this episode of the Latter-day Saint Women podcast. And if you're enjoying hearing these stories and experiences of women on the show and women from our past, we would love to hear from you. You're welcome to email Carly and me at podcasts at churchofjesuschrist.org with any feedback that you have or your ideas for future episodes. Until next time, I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Carly Guyman. Thanks for listening. Thank you.